Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to be able to sit under the preaching of your word. We ask that your spirit would help us to take the truths that we hear today and to be able to see how we might be able to apply them in our lives so that we might be able to conform our character, our lives, and even our speech to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. So our struggle with sins oftentimes resembles a weed-filled garden. Christian author Rosario Butterfield compares a believer's struggle with sin to inheriting a garden. She says this in an interview. Let's say you inherit an enchanting garden, and for 10 years you let it thrive. You let it do anything it wanted. You never pruned back the weeds. You never got rid of the pests. You never worked with the roses. You just let it, quote unquote, thrive. And after 10 years, what is it? It's disaster. It may even be past the point of no return. And you go to a master gardener and you say, hey, this is not fair. I want my money back. I just did everything I could to let this garden thrive. I let it do exactly what it wanted. You know, the master gardener is going to laugh at you and say, buddy, gardens come with weeds. It's part of its nature. And by failing to deal with that, you destroyed it. Now, if we inspect the garden of our lives, then I'm sure that many of us would find various weeds of sin in it. You may find weeds that represent your struggle with discontentment. Every time you look out the window at your neighbor's new convertible BMW, it makes you wonder, how does it feel to sit on those plush seats? How would it smell to be in that new car? How would it feel to have the wind go through your hair as you let down the convertible top and drive somewhere? Maybe in another area of your garden, you find weeds representing your struggle, your desire for popularity. You spend time trying to figure out just how to pose in your photo. You try and figure out how to get the lighting just right. You think about the outfit you're going to wear. And you try and figure out how best to create this photo so that people, when they see it, they would linger on it. Some weeds in the garden of your life might represent a struggle with lust, deception, anger, impatience. And many of us could probably identify various sin struggles. And we know that these sins cannot remain. Well, how do we remove these weeds of sin? I mean, we can't just go to the local Home Depot and find some weed killer. Do we put on garden gloves and try to uproot some of these weeds? Uh, but some of these weeds, their roots go way deep, and any type of elbow grease will fail to remove them. And we may even need a gas-powered weed whacker. But thankfully, God has given us something even more powerful than any weed killer or weed whacker to uproot the sin in our lives. He changed our relationship to sin when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. If we desire to deal with the sin in our lives, then we really have to understand how does a relationship with Christ change our relationship to sin? Now, to discover how our relationship with sin has changed, 
we'll be looking at a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. We'll be in Romans chapter 6. So if you're not there already, please turn there. Romans chapter 6. Now, if you ever read the book of Romans, you will discover that Paul displays the power of the gospel. Chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 3 describes how all humanity deserves condemnation. And the middle of chapter 3 to about chapter 5 describes how God provides salvation to all through Jesus Christ. And chapter 6 through 8 describes what does it mean to grow in your relationship with God. Now, if I had to choose one word to describe chapter 6 to chapter 8, that word would be sanctification. That chapter 6 and chapter 8 describes what does it mean to grow in your relationship to God and to grow in holiness. And so in chapter 6, Paul begins the discussion of what does it mean to grow in the Christian life. So again, we'll be in Romans chapter 6. Now this morning, I'd like to talk about three things. First, I'd like to make an observation from the text. Then I'll provide a reason, and then I'll describe a means. So we'll have an observation, reason, and means. Now first, what is the observation that I'd like to make? The observation is this, is that sin no longer rules over us. That if we have placed our faith in Christ, if we call ourselves Christian, sin no longer dominates our lives. We do not have to sin anymore. Sin no longer dictates what I need to do, and the sin's power is now broken. Sin now fails to make us do its bidding. Sin no longer rules over us. Now, in light of what Paul has written thus far in Romans, a believer might be tempted to think, if I'm saved by grace, then why should I no longer live under the rule of sin? Why do I need to fight sin? Why don't I just continue in sin? After all, Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Doesn't this mean that a believer can live a life of habitual sin? Because there's grace. But Paul dismisses the idea that grace permits us to return to sin's rule. Uh, look with me at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Now, Paul understands that a believer might conclude, especially if they're reading through the letter of Romans, that, that at this point, they might think that they can live in sin because God's grace would abound. After all, doesn't my sin cause God to show more grace? And this prompts Paul to ask that question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, note the word sin. It's singular. Well, what's the big deal? Sin, sins, they're all the same. But Paul uses the word sin almost 48 times in the book of Romans. But 45 times it occurs in the singular. Now, Paul paints a picture of sin not just being evil deeds that you do. He depicts it as a power that controls all humanity. 
He writes earlier in the book of Romans that all humanity is under sin. And one has to pay wages to sin. That sin dominates people. Sin kills people. And Paul characterizes sin as a ruler that rules over people. He may have picked up this image from the book of Genesis. Moses describes sin as crouching at the door of Cain's heart before he murders his brother Abel. That sin is not just things that we do, but it is a power that rules over all. Now you may think, well, that doesn't seem right. Because if sin rules over all, then how come unbelievers do some pretty great things? I mean, they help out at soup kitchens. When somebody forgets an item at the checkout stand at the grocery store, they bring out that item to the customer who forgot it. Or the unbeliever pays their taxes on time. And unbelievers make incredible breakthroughs in technology and medicine that benefit many. It doesn't seem like sin rules over them. Now, just because unbelievers are under the power of sin, it doesn't mean that they can't do good things. But they can't do one thing. They can't please God. An unbeliever doesn't think, what can I do to conduct my life in a way that pleases the Lord? The thought never enters their mind because they don't even believe in God. Now, not only does an unbeliever fail to live their lives to please God, but the power of sin also affects their motivations. I mean, why do unbelievers return a forgotten item at the checkout stand to someone? Is it because they want to hear the words, thank you, you're so wonderful? Is it to say that I've done my one good deed today so I can feel pretty good about myself? Is it for that desire to feel superior? I mean, what motivates an unbeliever to make breakthroughs in technology or medicine? Do they want to see their face on a billboard touting their achievements? Do they want to achieve acclaim through their work? Do they want history to remember their names? The power of sin also taints motivation as well. Now, let's say the unbeliever does good deeds, but for how long? How long can they do good deeds? Can they be good all the time? When they hit traffic on the 59 freeway trying to head downtown for an appointment, but then they are sitting there, will they have good thoughts? Or will they curse the fact that someone had the gall to get into a traffic accident and preventing me from meeting a client on time? I mean, do they always get along with their spouse? Or does she complain to her husband, how come you're never at home to help with the kids when he tries to leave the house to spend time with the guys? Does a person express her anger to coworkers when the manager promotes another person instead of her? A person will eventually lie, speak a harsh word, think wrongly of someone, or even feel angry. A person cannot escape the power of sin on their own strength. It dominates them. And so they need help. They need a power beyond themselves because by their own strength, they cannot escape it. They need grace. Now, grace simply means a merited favor. It refers to someone who has the power, the resources, the ability to be able to help someone with no power, no resources, and no ability. A person in a superior position 
aids a person in an inferior position. And when this person in a superior position helps the one in an inferior position, the person in the inferior position cannot make any claim on the superior, either to repay him or to do anything to earn or to be able to get the salvation that the superior offers. God demonstrates grace through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in Jesus' Christ's work on the cross experiences grace. God is in the superior position, helping us in the inferior position through his son. We did nothing to deserve this. We cannot do anything to repay God. Now, if God saves us by grace, then why would anyone want to return under the power of sin? Why would you submit yourself again to sin's reign? Why would you want to live a life of habitual sin? No person who has truly experienced grace would ever want to return to a life ruled by sin. But both you and I know that there are people who return to sin. And one possible cause is that they live according to an idea called cheap grace. It's also known as license. They think that they can live any way they like because they believe that God will ultimately forgive them. They live according to the motto, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. After all, God is faithful to forgive us our sins. But such a person fails to understand the cost of grace. The payment for sin is death. But instead of us paying the price for our sin, God sends his son to die in our place. Only God can free us from sin by sending Jesus to die on our behalf. Grace is not cheap. Grace is costly. It costs you nothing, but it costs God everything. So grace prohibits a believer from returning to a life of sin. This explains Paul's response to the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Paul crafts this response by no means in Greek in the strongest way possible in light of the argument, in light of the question. Other ways of translating the phrase could be Banish the thought. God forbids. It's not even possible that grace, when properly understood, prevents a believer from submitting themselves once again to sin. Now, this brings me to the second point, the reason. Why do we no longer live under the rule of sin? Well, God frees us from sin. Sin no longer rules over us because God frees us from sin and God liberates us from the bondage of sin and that the authority of sin no longer has any power over a believer. Sin's power has been cut. It is severed. God frees us from sin. Now, Paul reminds us that we have died to sin. He writes this in the latter half of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? When 
believers place their faith in Christ, they have died. Now, you may say, well, what do you mean we died? I mean, I feel very much alive. Uh, Very true. All of us are still very much alive, some more alive than others. But as believers, we have died to sin's authority. When sin looks at us, it sees a corpse. It's hard for a master to demand anything of a dead slave. Um, Think of it this way. When a person dies, the government no longer has any authority over them. The dead person doesn't need to pay taxes. The government doesn't draft a dead person to fight in its wars. The government can't call on a dead people to serve on jury duty. The government makes no claims on a dead person. Sin no longer controls or influences us because we are dead to it. Okay, well, now, wait one second. Now, if that's the case, if we are truly dead to sin, then how come I don't live a life that's free from sin? I mean, as I've already mentioned, we commit acts of sin. We may experience envy, feel discontent, lie, think evil of others, lust, and even express anger. And I would say to you, you are absolutely right. You are envious, discontent, deceptive, lustful, and angry. But I would also say to you, it's because you choose to be so. Before you actually commit envy, before you feel discontent, before you lie, before you speak evil against other people, before you indulge in your lustful thoughts, before you choose to express your anger, you feel a tension. You feel the tension to do right from wrong. You feel the tension to do what is pleasing to God versus what displeases God. Some feel this tension more intensely. Others feel it more mildly. Now, this tension to do right and wrong reveals our separation from sin. That before God severed you from the authority of sin by his grace, you would have felt compelled to do whatever sin compelled you to do. That you lived according to your selfish desires, by your own resources, according to your own timing, and you then, under sin, produce sinful acts. But now you no longer serve sin as its slave. God has given you freedom now to choose. You can choose to return to the rule of sin, or you can choose to live under God's rule. Now, this brings me to my last point, means. How did we die to the rule of sin? Well, God unites us with Christ. That God, by his grace, unites us with Christ when we place our faith in his saving work on the cross. What happens to Christ also happens to us. Sin no longer rules over us because God frees us from sin by uniting us with Christ. Now, Paul reminds us of our union with Christ through baptism. Uh, Look with me at verse 3. It says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, baptism shows how God unites a believer 
with Christ. The word baptism has a literal and a metaphorical sense to it. Uh, the word baptism, in the literal sense, means something that's submerged underwater. One would describe a ship that has sunk as baptized. One would, one would baptize a ladle in a barrel to be able to retrieve water to drink. You could describe a drowned person as baptized. The word baptism also has a metaphorical sense, though. It has the sense of taking on a new identity. For instance, when a person dyes a cloth that is white, by baptizing it into a vat of purple dye, when they remove that white cloth, it takes on a purple color. It takes on a new identity. That a person united in Christ receives baptism and takes on a new identity. Now, when Paul talks about baptism here in this particular text in verse 3 and also in verse 4, he probably refers to both conversion and water baptism. Well, now why? Well, during the apostolic age, the church would not separate conversion from baptism. That when a person professes faith in the saving work of Christ, they would immediately receive baptism. I mean, think of Cornelius or the Ethiopian eunuch. Once they professed faith in Christ, they immediately received baptism. Both occurred almost concurrently. Well, now you must be wondering, well, how come we don't do that now? Why do we wait a period of time after someone makes a profession of faith before they receive baptism? Well, during the apostolic age, to be a Christian would have meant that you renounce the emperor, you would have pledged alliance, you would pledge your loyalty to God alone. Now, this would have caused both families and business partners to ostracize you because when a person made a profession of faith in the gospel, they understood its cost. Now, after the apostles died, more people professed faith in Christ, but the early church needed to determine did these individuals make a genuine profession of faith? And this required church leaders to begin examining baptismal candidates via a process called catechism. And after an individual passed the examination process, they would then receive water baptism and enter into the church community. And we operate by a similar principle today by offering baptism and membership classes and then also conducting a baptism interview so that we as a church would affirm a individual's an individual's profession of faith. Now on a side note, baptism isn't required for salvation. If you needed to be baptized in order to be saved, then it would violate the principle salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Baptism simply is an outward display of an inward reality. You receive baptism by the Holy Spirit uniting you to Christ when you place your faith in Christ, and afterwards you receive water baptism when the church affirms your profession of faith, and then you demonstrate your confession, your conversion, by undergoing baptism. Now, we are united with Christ in baptism, but what do we identify with Christ in? We identify with Christ burial. Now let me read again the first half of verse 4. We were buried therefore with him 
by baptism into death. Now, why does Paul use the image of buried? Uh, well, what do you do with dead people? You bury them. I know. Some of you may say, well, we cremate them. But in the first century, they typically buried their dead. Now, just as Jesus died, you died. When you place your faith in Christ, God essentially super glues you to Jesus. Note the phrase, with him. Or imagine Jesus being a piece of duct tape and you being a piece of duct tape. And God tapes you both together. And just as you can't remove two pieces of duct tape stuck together, you cannot ununite yourself to Christ once you've been united to him. It's permanent. Your union to Christ through the Holy Spirit has freed you from the power of sin because you are dead to it. Now, is that it? No. Paul adds one more thing. We identify with Christ's resurrection. Now, look with me at the latter half of verse 4. It says this, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead raised you from the dead. And Paul describes it as the glory of the Father. Now, one might wonder, why does Paul use the word glory rather than power? Well, glory is power displayed. When you see fireworks burst in the sky, you don't say what powerful fireworks. You'd actually describe the display as glorious. God the Father displays the power of the Holy Spirit when he raises the Son from the dead. And that same power raises you to new life. And this new life places you under the rule of God. And a sign of this new life is the indwelling Holy Spirit. That the Spirit dwells in you to direct and to lead you in what Paul calls newness of life. This new life refers to one that you live under God's rule rather than sin's rule. The Holy Spirit has given you new desires to live according to God's instruction. Well, how does resurrection power work? Tim Keller tells this story about Christ's resurrection. A minister was in Italy, and there he saw the grave of a man who had died centuries before, who was unbeliever and completely against Christianity, but a little bit afraid of it too. So the man had put a huge stone slab over his grave so that he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there is a resurrection from the dead. He had insignias put all over this slab saying, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. Now, evidently, when he was buried, an acorn must have fallen into the grave. So a hundred years later, the acorn had grown up through the grave and split the slab. It was now a tall, towering oak tree. The minister looked at it and asked if an acorn, which has a power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? Tim Keller makes this comment. The minute you decide to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life 
It's the power of the resurrection. The same thing that raised Jesus from the dead, think of the things you see as immovable slabs in your life. Your bitterness, your insecurity, your fears, your doubts. Those things can be split off and rolled off. The more you know him, the more you grow into the power of the resurrection. Well, how does this work exactly? Well, think about a sin that you struggle with. Let's say you struggle with desiring the approval of others. You may be a parent with kids in high school, wishing that other parents would recognize how great your parents are and how great you are as a parent. And whenever you have perhaps maybe a dinner with other parents at a symphony banquet, you may feel the temptation of saying, oh, if only my child practiced more then she could have been a first chair violinist, hoping that another parent would then respond, your child isn't that bad. She's only second chair because she works so hard at school, in her English classes, her math classes, her biology classes. You're such a good parent. But when you feel that temptation, you have a choice. Will I live under the rule of sin by criticizing my daughter so that others might praise her and in turn praise me, for being a wonderful parent because I feel that need to be affirmed? Or do you choose to live under God's rule, knowing that my worth doesn't come from what other people say, but that God, by his grace, saved me through his son so that I might be worthy in his eyes. And I don't need the approval of other parents or other people because God approves of me. Maybe your in-laws are staying with you for an extended amount of time. The first week, of course, is the honeymoon period. Everyone laughs, smiles, and says polite things. The second week, though, you begin to feel the heat of potential conflict, especially when your mother-in-law questions your decor choices. Why did you paint the wall this color? Why did you hang up this photo? Your in-laws begin to complain about the food. It's too salty. It's too mushy. It's too bland. And every critique chips away at your self-worth. It chips away at your patience. And you feel the desire to give your in-laws a taste of their own medicine. You have a choice to make. Will you return to the rule of sin and lash out? Or will you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit that reminds you, you are imperfect. You have faults. But God, by his grace, saved you. After all, God bears with you even when you criticize him for the way that he runs the world. And if you do decide to speak, then you decide to speak the truth in love rather than in bitterness. To do battle with sin requires us to understand what it means to be united with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That when you face temptation, remember you are no longer under the rule of sin. You don't have to give in. And the Holy Spirit who raised you with Christ can help you avoid sin and live in a way that pleases God. So to summarize this morning's message, we talked about three things. And when you put all those three things together, it forms one statement. It says, sin no longer rules over us because God frees us from sin by uniting us with Christ. Let me close with this observation by Bono, who's the lead singer of U2. He says this, Your nature 
is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I've heard of people who have life-changing, miraculous turnarounds, people set free from addiction after a single prayer, relationships saved where both parties say, let go and let God. But it was not like that for me. For all that I was lost, I am found, it is probably more accurate to say I was really lost. I'm a little lost, little less so at the moment. And then a little less and a little less again. That to me is a spiritual life. The slow reworking and rebooting the computer at regular intervals. Reading the small print of the service manual, it has slowly rebuilt me in a better image. It has taken years, though, and it is not over yet. The struggle with sin will last all of our life. But as we embrace our identity in Christ, the Holy Spirit helps us resist the desire to return to sin little by little so that we become more like Christ every day. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you have showed us through your Son, Jesus Christ, for taking the penalty of sin and placing it upon your Son so that we might identify with his death through baptism, but we also might identify with his resurrection, and that now we are given a new life. We are dead to the rule of sin, but alive to you in Christ and your Holy Spirit that raised us from that death also empowers us to resist the desire to return to the power and dominion of sin. We ask that your Spirit who dwells within us would help us to live that spiritual life, to choose daily not to give in to the power of sin, but to live our life in a way that pleases you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.